set by Waterloo's own Paul Cloud. Hello and welcome to Fly With Your Shadow, the podcast all about music, mental health and illness, and the mess that the COVID pandemic has made of it all. I'm Jeff Robson and this show comes to you from my home in Winnipeg, Manitoba. This episode is very different from all of the previous episodes of this show for a few reasons. As I told you in episodes two and three of this show, it was largely inspired by the suicide death of John Bottomley in 2011. Losing a hero whose songs had healed me and helped me so much felt like losing a really close friend, and I didn't even know John personally. Sadly, history repeated itself five years later when a musician that I loved similarly, and this time knew more closely, died on June 18th, 2016. Paul McLeod was a super talented singer-songwriter from Kitchener, Ontario. He built his reputation locally and regionally early on as a captivating solo performer who mixed great original songs alongside a vast and diverse repertoire of covers. He first came to the attention of many of us nationally and internationally when he joined legendary long-standing roots rock band Skydiggers in the mid-90s. That band was led by three great singers and songwriters, Josh Finlayson, Peter Cash, and Andy Mays. The band's best-known songs were sung by Andy and Peter. Coming off of their most commercially successful album ever, Road Radio, which spawned a number of hits and instant classics, Peter Cash stepped away from the band. He went on to perform alongside his brother Andrew Cash for a number of years afterward. Facing the loss of a prominent member and still wanting to move forward, Skydiggers invited Paul McLeod to join the band. He quickly joined them in the studio to make an album, 1997's Desmond's Hip City, and joined the band on the road. Skydiggers were touring a lot in those days, so Paul got to visit and see a lot of new places and was exposed to audiences all over the place. He often opened the shows before joining the band for the headlining set. It was at one of those shows, actually several of those shows, that Paul recorded his first CD, Tell the Band to Go Home. It's a brilliant record of his incredible talent and skill as a live solo performer. In 2002, when I was officially launching my campus and community radio show, I chose the name Tell the Band to Go Home because it perfectly embodied what I wanted to do with the show. I wanted to present singer-songwriters and provide an avenue for talented performers to gain a bit more of the exposure that they so deserved and to share some of the music that I love and am excited about with eager fans like me. Paul was a guest on my show a few times over the years. My tribute post to him on my website is far and away the most popular post on the site, and it continues to be visited nearly every day by someone looking for information about Paul. Sadly, information is kind of hard to find elsewhere. In 2000, Skydiggers released a live album that featured Paul called There and Back, It's a magical representation of one of the best live bands in Canada. As much as I love Skydiggers, the biggest highlight and a real showstopper moment is Paul's version of Biloxi by Jesse Winchester on that album. It's stunning. That same year, Paul released an album called Close and Play, which was produced by another iconic Canadian live performer, Hawksley Workman. He would record again with the Skydiggers for their 2003 album Bittersweet Harmony. 
After that album and subsequent concerts, Paul didn't play with the band very much again. Paul's next album came in 2007. It was called Bright Eyes Fade, and it's another magical document of his immense talent. It contains some great songs. Also that year, Paul joined one of his favorite bands, and one of mine, another iconic Canadian band, Rio Statics, on stage at the Waterloo warm-up show for what was at the time intended to be their last show ever at Massey Hall in Toronto. Real Statics are often best known for the wild performances, incredible guitar stylings, and truly unique voice of Martin Tielli. Paul had played in Tielli's solo band for a while, and was called in to sing for Martin, who lost his voice in the weeks leading up to the Massey Hall show. In 2009, Skydiggers celebrated their 20th anniversary, and Paul joined the band for a number of shows. I was lucky enough to see one of those shows in Toronto. Paul would only release one more album. It was called Gage, and it came out in 2011. Those last two albums were released by Kitchener-based record label Busted Flat Records, which is run by Mark Logan. He also owns a popular music store, Encore Records. Mark and his wife, Lynn Jackson, were good friends with Paul and strong supporters. I'm really glad that they could join me for this episode, and they contributed a lot. Coming up, I'll also talk to Andy Mays from the Skydiggers, and a longtime close friend of Paul's, Jason Schneider. Jason Schneider is a writer and publicist from here in Canada. He wrote a lot of great music articles that I love to read and was one of the authors of a book that I absolutely love. I kind of call it my Bible called Have Not Been the Same. The last time I spoke to Paul McLeod was in 2011 on his birthday. He kind of dropped off the radar sometime after that and I had a really hard time getting a hold of him. By then I had developed a Facebook friendship with Lynn Jackson and she kind of kept me informed from time to time about what was going on with Paul. Much like most people, though, I really had no idea that Paul was struggling with a mental illness and was having a really hard time in life. In June of 2016, Lynn broke the hard news to me that Paul had committed suicide. I was devastated. I felt guilty. I wished that there was more that I could have done. I wished that I could have told him more often how much his music meant to me. I'm far from the only one who felt that way. There's a thriving Facebook group with nearly 700 members called In Loving Memory of Paul McLeod, where people share photos, videos, and memories of Paul regularly. On this, the fifth anniversary of his tragic death, I wanted to pay tribute to him by providing memories from some of his closest friends. I hope you enjoy this loving tribute to our friend, Paul McLeod. Holding on the same southern as the fabric tears I'm ruining And wearing still the same charade I wore away in years of contact I'm Lynn Jackson. I'm a singer-songwriter from Kitchener, Ontario. I've been uh, doing this crazy thing for about 20 years now. I've put out 11 albums. And um, we're talking today about Paul McLeod, he was a big influence on me in the early days. And over the years, I got to know him and we became friends. Can you tell me a bit about when when you met Paul or how he kind of came into your life? Absolutely. Uh, the first time I saw Paul McLeod play was 
at the Walper Hotel in downtown Kitchener. I'm pretty sure it was 1999. And the Walper in those days had um, great musicians playing in their back room. It was, uh, I don't know, like a medium-sized back room, but um, Wednesday nights they would have Rob Zybo, which I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard of before, Rob Zabo. Uh, Thursday nights, it was Paul. Friday nights, it was Shannon Lyon. And Saturday nights, it was a mix of local players. But um, And I, I tried to get out as often as possible to see everybody. Uh, everybody is fantastic. I'm fans of all of them. Thursday nights were packed. <laughs> they were absolutely packed to the rafters. Paul always packed the room and... Even though it was packed, people were still quiet. They still they were respectful. They they were there to listen. They wanted to hear him. He was doing a mix of originals. He was doing covers, and I was actually there interviewing another local band at that night that I was there for the local newspaper, and I chose that night to go down so that we could go and I could finally see Paul McLeod after, and it was just fantastic. I'd never seen him. What a player, and yeah, just the songs he pulled out was fantastic. So that's the very first time I saw him play ever, 1999 at the Walper Hotel in Kitchener. And was it kind of was it kind of love at first sight? Like, did you were you were you drawn into his uh, his thing right away? It was it was kind of like one of those jaw dropping moments. Like this guy is so incredibly good, and he's really funny. And he's, you look around the room and everybody was just totally staring at the stage, full on paying attention. And uh, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I think it was like the second time I went and it was packed again. And I went with a girlfriend of mine and, and he, I guess he was just hamming it up and he asked, he was inviting people to come up and sing and my friend nudged me, and so I—I I don't even—I was so nervous, but I went up and I—I I said, I said, put my hand up. I said, I'll sing a song, and then I got up on stage, and and we did come together together, and uh, <laughs> I couldn't—you know—those words are so messed up. I couldn't remember them all, but he was playing the song, and he was telling me the words just before I had to sing them. It was fantastic. <laughs> It was just great. It was it was really fun. I was extra cool that night afterward, just because I got up and sang with him. <laughs> so how did how did you develop a friendship? Like how how did you uh, eventually meet him and start talking to him? Well, I think it was that night I bought his album after the show, and he signed it for me. I I went to his shows as often as I could, um, and then in the early two thousands, I put out my own record and became involved with Busted Flat like in the early 2000s. So only like a few years later, um, I guess I didn't really know him at that point, but then I started to get to know him by going to his shows. And Tuesday nights in Kitchener, there was a really great open mic that everybody, a lot of people went to, hosted by Matt Osborne. He was also no longer with us, fantastic musician. And a lot of times Paul would be there hanging out at the uh, open mic. So. I had a bunch of conversations with him there in the early 2000s and he'd watch me play and he wouldn't play though. He, I think he, 
he didn't want to upstage the people that were just there for the open mic kind of thing. So, uh, but he would come and hang out and chat with people. It was like a night out for him. And I, I guess I kind of got to know him there and I got to know him at his gigs. And then I was eventually signed to Busted Flat and uh, Shannon Line was the first one on Busted Flat. And then Mark approached me and I was the second one. And, and I kind of said, hey, you really should check out Paul's songs. They're really great. And then Paul ended up being in, on Busted Flat. And, and then, uh, yeah, it kind of grew from there, being label mates. So tell me a bit about, because uh, cause you ended up, like, um, touring with him and stuff. So tell me a bit about how that came about, what that was about. Okay. Well, I think it was in 2007 that he put out Bright Eyes Fade, the album Bright Eyes Fade on Busted Flat Records. And I was astounded. He asked me to open the show at Starlight, which was amazing and also packed. It was a great show. And uh, I had an album out that year as well, Restless Days. So we, uh, I booked us a tour. I, I had booked a couple tours already and I usually tried to take another Busted Flat person with me. Um, just to kind of team up and take on the country because it's such a big country. And uh, I booked us a Western tour first um, to promote our albums. And Mark came with us, Mark Logan from Busted, the head of Busted Flat. And also my better half. Um, He came with us as kind of our driver, tour support, moral support, um, finding accommodations. He was our, he was our, go-to guy or rock on that on those tours we did one west and we did one east i i did all the bookings and um yeah we had a we had a great time (laughs) paul is chatty paul was chatty a very chatty guy and a very very funny guy i would say paul was the funniest guy i have ever met in my entire life and i'm not joking (laughs) uh so Mark would be driving and uh, I, I kind of called them the, <laughs> I kind of called those tours with Paul, the uh, spitting on Mark tour because, because Paul, Paul would sit in the back seat, but he, he would sit forward. Mark was driving and I'd be turned around in the passenger seat and Paul would be, you know, regaling us with stories and jokes and then pointing out things on the road. And, and I'd, I'd be like sipping my, bottled water and we'd be going to the next gig and and Paul would just tell these jokes or he'd point something out on the road and it would be like zing and I I would laugh so hard I would spit all my water out all over Mark over and over again and the more that I did that the more Paul just howled and cackled and yeah right all the way from all the way from Kitchener to Vancouver and then all the way from Kitchener to Halifax he told us stories constantly <laughs> he was like the one of the most talkative guys ever it was but in a great way just very entertaining and it was a lot of fun a lot of really great memories and if money's been driving your bus get off that connect stop and slump Over 
over the years, Paul, I would ask Paul for advice because I was a new performer. I was a new songwriter. And I just, I remember him telling me things like, oh, you know, everybody thinks that I'm just a, a genius uh, player. But really what it comes down to is woodshedding, like practicing. And he really impressed upon me um, the importance of practicing all the time and, and you know, practicing for all your shows and he he really ingrained that into me so i took that very seriously it was a it was a great piece of advice i think pretty much everybody could handle practicing more so it was it came in very handy that came in very handy and uh, you know the fact that he's such a great player and a great finger picker i started to finger pick because uh, of watching him and uh, also at his shows if you just looked around the room, a lot of times it would be filled with other local musicians who, and really fantastic guitarists, fantastic uh, singers and songwriters who were there there to just watch. And they weren't, maybe some of them were in country bands, maybe some of them were in cover bands, but, or blues. Yeah, I can think of all these people and they were just there to watch um, his, repertoire and his songwriting, his playing, uh, just drew a wide swath of people out on a regular basis. Um, so I'm talking about uh, maybe in the later 2000s, early 2010s, um, he had standing gig, standing gigs at uh, in Guelph at Jimmy Jazz on Monday nights. I lived in Guelph for a while, but even when I lived in Kitchener, I made the trek out to Guelph to watch him quite a number of times when I moved to Kitchener. Um, always packed, always a great crowd in Guelph. Guelph's a great place. Uh, so, and then Sunday nights at the boathouse, the old boathouse. Um, lots of people out to see him, lots of local musicians. Uh, same in Guelph, actually. And it was just, it was just amazing. The he would he would usually start off playing a bunch of his original songs for the first set. And then later on in the night, he would pull out just tons of covers, obscure covers, folk covers, female songs, grunge covers. Just like watching him play, a lot of times he would play the spirit of radio <laughs> with that intricate guitar part and singing at the same time. And we were all just, our jaws are on the floor watching him do it, not missing a note. And I'm not even a Rush fan. <laughs> And they loved it when he played that song and, you know, wondering where the lions are. And I've seen him do, I've seen him do Billy Bragg. Of course, the who he loved the who uh, I've seen him do Ray of light, uh, heart of glass by Blondie Bjorg, the sugar cubes, you know, sound garden. And then at the boathouse, they had a piano. So sometimes at the end of the night, he would sit down and play Elton John just just crazy just so much talent there and and the other thing with Paul too is just watching him handle the crowd that was also learning experience I would say out of all of the solo performers I've ever seen in my life Paul absolutely knew how to handle the crowd how to work the crowd how to charm them how to deal with hecklers like really quickly just a couple of words and they were they were silent it was just the 
the command that he had over the stage was just also something that was educational to watch. And, but he was still, he would still do it and he would tell jokes in between. He was always working on bits, like comedy bits and trying out jokes. And sometimes they were a little risque and sometimes they were, you know, really sweet. And, but he was always making people laugh. And he was, I would say he was just like the ultimate entertainer when he wanted to be. And when he wanted to play his, his own, uh, his own stuff. Uh, he was very serious and, you know, introduced all the songs and very respectful to the crowd. And, and yeah, it was just, it was just great watching him and watching all the, all those different parts come together to put on a really great show. He was always very, very present at the shows. Um, he was always there. He was, you always knew he was there because he wanted to be there. He was there to sing his songs and to entertain you at the same time. Now you actually wrote with him at, at one point, right? <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, he was over, I think it was a Saturday night on our back porch. He only lived a few blocks away for many, many years. So every once in a while he'd come over and hang out on our back porch and we would have some drinks and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, just inside the kitchen is where I did a lot of my demoing. I had a little laptop there and we, uh, we hung out with Mark till fairly late and then Mark headed off to bed and we kind of stayed up <laughs> until the sun started to come up and he started playing this really simple riff. Uh, and I said, Oh, Oh, let's get this down. I started singing something and it just kind of happened like that. And luckily I recorded it because I don't think we would have remembered it the next day. But it became When You Were Mine, which came out in 2010 on Coming Down. And uh, it's just very straight ahead, but it was really fun. Uh, we never, it wasn't intentional. It just kind of happened. Um, I'm not sure if he regularly wrote with other people or not. I know he wrote a song with or for Sean Kellerman, who's a local local blues guy, down in the street. They did a video together. It's pretty cool. Yeah, but I think really Paul was a solo guy. He he liked a lot of he liked interesting rhythms and he liked interesting chords that would push the key. He liked jazz chords. He and he incorporated all that into his original stuff. Yeah, his songs are not very straightforward, are they? I mean, I I know that you, but they're you and, really catchy. Yeah, you and I kind of talked about this at one point. You were trying to learn some of his songs and realizing it 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 wasn't as easy as as you thought it might be, right? Yeah, I learned. Um, oh, I think I learned Giants. Giants was it or? Uh, yeah, I think I learned Giants, and that wasn't too bad. I had some. I had some help from my pal, Ryan Allen, who used to play with Paul in a cover group called Romeo Sex Fighter, <laughs> uh, kind of like a super group cover band locally. Um, so he helped me a little bit with Giants. Um, it wasn't too bad. I tried to le learn cruelty and there's some chords in there that I still have to figure out. Um, but I, I played Money as well. I've covered Money off of uh, Bright Eyes Fade, which 
was always a crowd favorite and it's actually pretty simple to play but uh, a lot of stuff uh, I really like the song Holland I tried to learn that and it's a very specific picking style um, his songs are a lot of work and if you um, his his really good friend Brian Wright who is one of the front men in Romeo Sex Fighter um, they were long friends for decades um, yeah Brian, <laughs> Brian told the story about uh, Paul broke his arm one time. I don't know if it was cycling or something, but um, he had a couple of shows coming up and Brian had to learn the guitar parts. And Brian is an accomplished guitar player. And I just remember him telling me like, wow, <laughs> it was a, it was like a heavy tutorial session learning those songs so he could play those gigs with Paul singing. <laughs> he seemed to be connected to so many people, right? Like he obviously had that kind of magnetic personality that people were drawn to him because he has so many friends. Absolutely. Everybody knew Paul. Uh, and like I said, he was very engaging at his gigs. He was very funny. Um, he, he remembered everybody's name all the time, which you do so many gigs. It's, it gets hard after a while, but he, uh, yeah, he was he was just there to hang out and to entertain you and to play you his stuff and be listened to and just, yeah, he was, I don't know, he was just Paul McLeod. There was only ever one of them. Do you want to talk at all about losing him? What that was like? Uh, it was a it was a very difficult day. I had a show in the afternoon, and I came home. And uh, I had a bunch of Facebook messages and it was just, it was really shocking and devastating. Although he'd been out of touch for a couple of years with Mark and I, he hadn't, uh, we hadn't really seen him or talked to him or had any communication with him. I think things got really bad for him in the last few years. And he might have just kind of shut up, shut himself off from a few people. Uh, he wasn't performing anymore. And, and I had to do a gig that night and the bar owners at the gig that was going to knew him. And it was just, it was really difficult night. I ended the night with the black boys on mopeds, which he covers on tell the band to go home. Uh, yeah. And, and I, yeah, I just ended up coming back home that, late that night and being online, talking with a online with a bunch of friends who were, who were also shocked and really hurting, and just trying to, you know, console each other and, and support each other. In this, in September of that year, in 2016, they did a, a special tribute show to him at the Starlight in Waterloo. I still have that ticket um, kind of upstairs on my bathroom wall. So yeah, uh, just little reminders of him are there everywhere. And uh, just jokes he told, the advice he gave, things he said, and and the songs. We've got the songs. We've always got the songs. And I've got the memories of all the uh, the obscure covers he'd pull out and just the wizardry, the guitar wizardry and, and all of that. 
but also just, you know, hanging out and playing poker or being on tour. I have those memories and I took a lot of photos. Thankfully, I did put them up on the, the Facebook tribute page a few years ago. I put up a bunch of photos from the Eastern tour and the Western Canada tour. So they're up there somewhere if people ever want to check them out and I just really wanted people to hear him and I was a big supporter and, and yeah, I just, I wanted people to hear him from coast to coast. Put down the phone and Alicia, turn up that old radio. Let down your hair and Alicia, we gon' dance all night long. I got a letter from the prison, it looks like your boy's coming home. I'm Mark Logan. I sell records. I also have a label, Busted Flat Records, that releases brilliant albums by mainly Canadian artists. Paul McLeod was one of them. So how did you meet Paul McLeod? Uh, he used to bring his albums into our record store to get us to sell them. So it was back in the day when uh, Tell the Band to Go Home came out and Close and Play were the ones that he would bring in and we would sell them. And uh, he and Danny Michelle, we don't, we sold a lot of their albums before they were superstars. So yeah, I mean, that's how I met Paul. I mean, just hanging out in the store, he, uh, I'd see him live on occasion, but um, yeah, it was mainly just, you know, phone him up. Hey, we need another 50. <laughs> this records did really well. I started working with him. Essentially, I, I I was releasing mainly people from Kitchener. And I did Shannon Lyon first. And then after Shannon, I had to find somebody else. And I, I met Lynn Jackson. And I released one of her records. And then Mike Alviano, I think, was after that. And Dan Walsh, who was not really he was Port Dover but I I'd known him and I was really just looking around for someone else to do and I ran into Paul at a bar and we just started talking and I just said hey you know if you have it's been a while since closing play came out is there any plans to do something else and he had he had recorded uh he had or was about to start recording the what became Bright Eyes Fade and we just sort of started talking about maybe doing that together. And his first two releases, well, the first two releases that were readily available were not in print. So I arranged to get them redone and released as well. So he had merch to sell. It just kind of went from there. And so how did, how did it work, you know, releasing his records after that, did you just uh, did he just come to you whenever he had enough material, or were you guys working closely on, you know, when to put out the next record, kind of thing? Or oh, it was really up to Paul. I mean, Bright Eyes Fade did really well, and you know he played and toured it. I mean, Lynn set up a couple tours east and west, and Lucas Stagg set up a couple tours east but it was really up to paul he wasn't writing a ton and when gage came out it was 
essentially, yeah, I've got enough to record. I want to do a do it solo, which was something really new. And so we just went in and did it. It was pretty much done in a in a day. And uh, yeah, and that was that was the extent of it. I mean, after that, he didn't really write much. And there wasn't a plan to do another record after Gage. I mean, Gage didn't really take off. Yeah, it's a pretty different record. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it's Paul. So, I mean, you one would assume that, um, you know, people that were in were in. But for whatever reason, Gage didn't really... Um, it wasn't... didn't have the same reception as bright as fade and paul wasn't touring as much at that point either he was mainly sticking to to his regular gigs in guelph and, and kitchener so it was difficult to get it get much traction outside of this area because he wasn't there <laughs> and are you still handling those records kind of like, like, are there still copies? I, I know that uh, a couple of them are, are on the busted flat band camp and stuff, right? Yeah, I've got, I've got clothes and play and I've got gauge bread as fade. We had sold out of, and um, it's not, it's not really up to me to reissue it. I don't think at this point, I mean, his family has, that decision power. I mean, there was a talk at some point of releasing it with apparently there's a couple extra tunes kicking around and there's a, a live show at the boathouse from that era that was recorded professionally that there's talk of maybe doing a double disc with a live show, but that never really got um, pursued by anybody. down to the Dakota to see the sky diggers and took Paul down and it was uh or maybe he made his own way down but he sat in with them that night it was uh it was to celebrate the compilation release that came out and he got up and played with them and it was really remarkable because he hadn't played with them in years and they just got up on stage and stepped into the tune like he'd never left the band and they loved it. And you could see those guys were really happy. And then they asked him to, if he wanted to play with them when they were opening for the hip um, within the week in North Bay. So Lynn and I drove him up to North Bay to play with the Sky Diggers opening for the hip. And it, it was crazy because there weren't 5,000 people there watching the hip i mean i'd say a couple thousand it was it was really small and um i'd never seen the hip before so i get to sort of stand on side stage and watch them and it was you know they're they're pretty okay band they were um yeah so it was that was really fun and paul played really well and the sky digger sounded great and it was the full band 
you know, with Michael and Jesse Bell Smith and Paul it was expanded, but it sounded really great. And then they went off to do their tour and Paul didn't. But, you know, seeing him step in and play with the Sky Diggers, it was, you know, it's like he remembered all his parts perfectly <laughs> for all the songs. Yeah, well, I saw, I mean, I was in Toronto in uh, 2009, I think, and the Sky Diggers were playing the Glenn Gould. And uh, so, so I wanted to go see them. And uh, Paul did the show. He had, again, he hadn't played with them, I don't think, for for years at that point um but it was one it was one of the best shows i'd ever seen him do with them like he was just amazing so yeah yeah and i mean that could still happen you know like he he was still able to to just step out and you know bring his a game and and play perfectly <laughs> can't hold a hand that's a warning We were going out west, and rather than drive, I just flew everybody with air miles. And like, hey, Paul, you're good. You got a passport? Yeah, 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 it's all good. And then, like, literally two days, three days before, oh, my passport's expired. So pick them up, take them to the passport office, get it filled out, pay for a rush, and it shows up the day before we leave. <laughs> <laughs> But he was a blast on the road. I mean, we drove everywhere and, you know, he was constantly, I mean, he had great stories. Whether or not they were true, they were great. You know, you never know. <laughs> Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Isn't that the old exactly. line? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and we, I mean, they were, you know, hours and hours trapped in a car. And I think we, you know, we didn't stop laughing the whole time. And the shows were good. And, you know, we, I remember when we were in uh, Surrey, we had a night off and we stayed at a friend's place in Surrey. And there's a casino somewhere near there. And um, Paul wanted to go to the casino to play some poker. So we go and uh, I dump him off at the poker table and played slots for a while because that's all I know how to do. And, after a couple hours, you know, I'm just sitting there having a drink and Paul walks over with a tray of chips and, uh, he won something like 500 bucks in the poker game. So it's just like, you know, that was the best paying gig of the tour. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was the first time I witnessed him, you know, I'd always him hear, hear him and his buddies talk about going to play poker at Fallsview or whatever. And uh, that was the first time I, I'd seen it in action. But he was, he was quite good at it. I'm having a wonderful time gone for the summer To meet with my ghost for what should be the last time I'll stop inviting 
been lots of great gigs. I mean, just seeing him. Um, when I used to do shows at the Boathouse, um, I'd always have two or three acts on. And I had I paired him with a local band called Sex Store for a really great band. Guys that have known each other for a long time. They can play anything. So I put them on a bill together. Paul opened and they played. And then for the third set, they played together. And they'd never played together before. Which is which was always, you know, it, it can go one of two ways. <laughs> and uh, Paul came up and played with them and just sort of started calling songs that I don't know if if they were easy songs or well-known songs or whatever. But they played an amazing set together, like things things that Romeo Sexfighter started doing like the cover band that he had with some other local guys but you know Shell Sanctuary, Teenage FBI, Pets by Porno for Pyros um, one of uh, Bjork tune, Birthday I think like just just it was just an amazing set and you know he was having fun because the band's really tight and they could follow his lead so things like that were really special where you could just tell you know just how immensely talented he was because you know that could have turned into a another train wreck but he knew i don't know if he could tell from the band what would work or if he just you know was able to guide them a little bit it wasn't overt if it was but it was just an amazing thing to watch where you know, just a bunch of really talented people playing together, and it sounded like I'd, I'd go see them every night if they played. They were they were just that good. And then he found a bunch of friends that played that um, and did the Romeo Sex Fighter thing, and that was that was really popular here for a good few years. And then when Paul passed, those guys carried on with a couple different guys they had to hire two guys to replace them <laughs> but you know they're still they still do well here but i mean just watching paul play i think a lot of times people started taking it for granted because he played here all the time like every week and it's tough to sustain a weekly for you know, five, ten years. And I mean, the, the Jimmy Jazz um, shows that he did every week, you know, it built a, a community around people going to watch him. Lift me up, radio. Lift me up, radio. My name is uh, Jason Schneider, and currently I run uh jason schneider media uh, previous to that uh i was a music journalist for exclaim and uh many other publications so tell me if you can when and how you got to know paul mcleod or know of him well um yeah well we both uh we're both from uh kitchener waterloo and uh yeah, Paul, I think he was, he was a couple of years older than me. So I think um, around the late, you know, around the turn of the 1990s when 
you know, everyone, uh, everyone in my circle was starting to, uh, turn 18 and 19. That's when we, uh, you know, started to realize that there were, uh, you know, friends of ours who were playing music and, uh, Paul was one of them. Um, I think, uh, I was trying to remember his, his first band, I think was called uh, the electric company. And, uh, that might've been the first time I saw him play somewhere. Um, but then, um, soon after that, you know, when he would play solo, um, he would, you'd be playing all the time in town. He was pretty much unavoidable. <laughs> um, you could go out, you know, anywhere, probably any night of the week and, uh, see him play somewhere. Um, but, but really, I guess I kind of really got to know him after I started, um, uh, I was taking a journalism um at the uh the local college and uh paul came and did a um did a lunchtime set and uh i decided to write a little review <laughs> of the uh, show for the campus paper and uh that's when i finally got to sit down and talk to him and you know we hit it off like gangbusters right away i think he was just impressed that somebody wanted to write about him and uh and that's kind of where our, our bond formed from there. I, I, uh, yeah, after that, I started writing for the local newspaper and, um, other local magazines. And I always tried to write about him as much as I can. And yeah, we became uh, pretty close after that. Um, so most of the people I've talked to have kind of known him more recently or came to know him sort of after he was releasing records and stuff. So I'm, I'm curious as someone who knew him even early on, like, was was he one of those guys that was a great kind of live performer out of the box, or did it take a while for him to grow into the performer that we came to know and love years later? Oh, he was he was great, you know, right right out of the gate, yeah, for sure. I mean, I was, you know, I I, I was listening to a lot of uh, a lot of music um, at that time, obviously, and, but you know seeing Paul, it was, it was right away, you know, from the first time I saw him, I knew he was the real deal. Um, just, he had such a, you know, presence on, on, on stage. And, uh, um, yeah, I think I, he was, well, you know, he, he always did a lot of covers, but I, I, I do remember his, his original stuff first. Um, you know, he was probably playing, playing giants from the first time I saw him that might have been the first that might have been the first song that got me is like wow some you know a guy from my hometown can write a song this good this you know this is pretty amazing and then uh um the other yeah the other big one I was trying to remember the title of it the uh um yeah the song about you know retiring my my jersey in the library um you remember the title of that one anyway might have to look it up but but yeah that that song really got to me too and uh yeah uh, he was yeah he was he was great you know right from the start and you know the whole time i knew him he was he was always consistent that's that's amazing to me. I, I I mean I know he held down like the weekly gig at the at at the pub, you know, in in Kitchener and stuff and uh and whatever. And doing those gigs can be can be tough, but it sounded like he was a real master of it. And 
you know, going in as an as an early unknown, I would imagine, on the campus at lunchtime has got to be a rough gig, kind of like that too, where people are not necessarily, it's not necessarily a listening audience there to see you, but uh, so he could hold that crowd already? Yeah, oh, well, for sure. And, and um, well, and now, and now that was the amazing thing I, I, I kind of noticed quickly was he, you know, he, he inspired, you know, fans <laughs> you know right right from the beginning like he you know he he kind of cultivated this this following like even though like i said you know you could go see him pretty much any night of the week somewhere a lot of time it was it was the same people and and it just kind of kept growing over the years like people would and, you know it was just kind of in i wouldn't say it was a an excuse to go out but you know if if it was say like a thursday night or something and nothing was going on it was always like oh where's paul playing let's go see him and um yeah you could uh, it 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 really became a social event and even you know at that time in, in 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 kitchener too i mean it was it was always you know it 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 was a, a really amazing scene like between Paul and Danny Michelle and Shannon Lyon and Rob Zabo, you know, all those guys were playing all the time. So, you know, one night, you know, you might go see Danny somewhere one night you might go see Paul somewhere. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a real, it, it was a real social network for sure. It's not fun. He tried doing some other things with with, with people too. Um, I you, well, you probably know about uh, about um, Hibakusha. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know when when he was getting that together with uh, with Corey Barnes and uh, Mark and Gord. I mean, there was I I had huge expectations for that actually because I thought okay, here are probably four of the you know the best musicians in town you know, doing something amazing. And, uh, I thought it was going to be huge. I mean, there was talk of them signing with Maple music, but nothing really came of it. And, and, uh, yeah, unfortunately as the years went on, that sort of became, uh, you know, that sort of became the story with Paul. It was just, uh, you know, a combination of, um, you know, stuff he was dealing with and just kind of bad timing but um um but yeah that might be jumping ahead a little bit i think he was i, I think he was in 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 the sky diggers before then um so yeah i don't want to you know confuse the timeline too much <laughs> um and uh like were what what kind of a friendship did you have like were, like were you guys hanging around or was it mostly just talking before and after shows and for newspaper articles um yeah no we it, well it got some more of kind of a hanging around uh thing you know later on i mean paul was you know he, well we 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 obviously you know related on a you know with a lot of uh stuff we've in, enjoyed in our lives you know music and 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 comedy well that, that was the other thing about paul like he he loved he loved comedy so much um 
you know, and, and, and I think we, uh, you know, more of our conversations uh, tended toward that because, you know, you can only talk about music so much, but, uh, you know, we'd, uh, we'd just talk about our favorite movies and TV shows and stand-up comedians. Uh, you know, he loved Norm MacDonald. We would, you know, we would kind of do, you know, and Mitch Hedberg, we would, you know, kind of do uh, Norm MacDonald, Mitch Hedberg routines back and forth forever. And, uh, yeah, I those those are kind of the conversations I, I remember in, enjoying a lot, and then uh, yeah, and then of course you know later on Paul got into well we both got into poker like I was telling you, and we'd uh, get together quite a bit for uh, for poker games. So yeah, the, the poker games seem to be a common theme when talking about Paul. It seems like everybody's got a poker game story or something. That was obviously obviously a passion of his and uh, something he enjoyed as well. Yeah, well, yeah, and and that was that was the other thing about Paul too. Like when 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 he got into something, he he got into it all the way. Um, you know, well, well before before poker, you know, through his whole life, you know, he was a real cycling enthusiast, as you probably know. Um, yeah, he he really, uh, you know, really did that to the fullest and uh yeah like i was telling you um you know every year for the for the tour de france that was always a a huge deal for him you know we'd get together and you know watch uh watch the highlights and uh <laughs> it was always uh yeah it always made made that more enjoyable i mean i never really got the appeal of the whole thing but you know when you're with paul he was just always so enthusiastic about it and he could you know he knew all the uh the ins and outs and stories about all the all the all the writers so it was it was kind of like having an expert color commentator there <laughs> right in the right in the room what a great There was always um, sort of this underlying thing with with Paul and 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 success. I guess you could say that uh, you know when once once people started from you know from our scene kind of started getting noticed. I mean, I guess you know Danny was the first to sort of uh, break out, kind of national, you know, become known on on a national level. Um, you know, everyone just kind of assumed, you know, Paul was going to kind of do the same thing. He was, he was going to become, you know, cause you know, CBC loved him, you know, he was getting support from a lot of different places. You know, obviously the Rios loved him. Um, they, they drop his name all the time. Um, yeah, it, 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 it just seemed to me like, you know, and I, and, you know, people like me and, you know, Michael Barkley, you know, we were always trying to sing his praises and, uh, and so, yeah, it, it, it seemed like, uh, logical. He was going to be the next one to, to kind of break out nationally, but, um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's kind of difficult to, to, to talk about, but, um, there's, you know, I think there was that sort of underlying thing with Paul that just, 
that just uh, held him back, you know. There were times when, you know, some some big things seemed on the horizon for him, and then, you know, you'd hear how he fell off his bike and broke his arm, and especially it's it sounds like the last couple of years of his life were especially difficult. He wasn't playing as much and performing as much and stuff like that. Were you guys still in touch during that time? Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember if I if I moved out of town by then, but uh, but no. Whenever you know, whenever we we'd get together for anything, you know, whether it was just, you know to play poker, or just to you know see a show or something. He I he he was always you know 100% positive with me, um, um, and you know thinking back on it now, I wonder if it was you know if it was more of a show for me. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I never had, I, I, I never saw him in any kind of negative situation. Do you, do you want to talk at all about, uh, when you heard that he passed away and what that was like? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was definitely down here in, in, in Toronto. Um, and, um, yeah, it was my friend, um, Ian, Ian Smith from the miniatures. He, uh, yeah, he, he called me and, and told me the news and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard people say before, you know, it was, it was a shock, but not a shock, you know? Um, cause yeah, I, I, I just, I'd known that, you know, like I was saying, I knew, I knew the people who were, who were trying to support him and, uh, and, um, yeah, it, it, it just seemed like, uh, you know, it all just, it all just fell apart and, uh, and it was, yeah, it was just really sad. I was, yeah, I was, I was broken up for it. I'd broken up about it for a long time. Um, there was just such a, you know, just such a waste of, uh, of incredible talent. Uh, the, the other unfortunate thing is that, uh, when somebody dies unexpectedly and especially, uh, you know, dies the way he did, um, there's always kind of a, what do we do with his music now and how do we keep his legacy going or do we, and it seems like a lot of his music has largely disappeared. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, you know, definitely, you know, a topic that, that touches a nerve with me too, because, uh, yeah, I, I, I really do think that, you know, the, the, the stuff he, he recorded, it, it needs to be available. I know, I, I think you can still get, get it from Zunior, but, uh, um, but yeah, Paul just, uh, you know the records he made um he well yeah it, it was it, it was a weird thing like he always seemed to be i might be i might be projecting here but i never felt he was he was comfortable being being a a, a recording artist um you know what i mean like he always seemed to just sort of 
make stuff just because maybe some people were were <laughs> were kind of urging him to i mean he you know like the first you know like like tell the band to go home that was basically you know that that, that was a live recording you know he didn't really have to to do much to, to put it out and then uh and then making the record uh, you know the record he made with with hawksley i think that one you know that that should definitely be someone should put that out again for sure that's uh such an awesome record is that is that close and play yeah i can't remember that and bright yeah. ice fade is also i think it's brilliant as well yeah yeah that's right um but uh but yeah but paul you know he never yeah he he, he never really seemed to connect with the whole business side of things you know he was he was just happy yeah he was he was he was happy doing his doing his shows every week, uh, you know, every Monday night, like he had that, he had that residency in Guelph at Jimmy jazz every Monday night for God, it seems like at least 10 years, you know, it's like you happen to be in, 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 in Guelph on a, on a Monday. It's like, okay, well, let's go see Paul. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, like he was, he was able to make a living, uh, you know, it's playing four or five nights a week and he just, that seemed to, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say it made him happy. Like I'm sure it made him happy, but it gave him that, at least that, that stability in his life, you know, which, which I think he needed the most. And, uh, and yeah. And, and, and I don't think, I don't know if, if, if making records gave him that same sort of stability, it, it, you know, there's too many, uh, too many variables when 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 you make a record I was looking for someone like you Keep me petrified the whole day Ellie, he was he, when he started doing the, the the solo thing uh for a while um he got Paul to play with him and his uh and his band and and I mean, to me, that was that, that was a brilliant thing too. I mean, to have Paul and and Martin together. I mean, Martin was even <laughs> Martin, Martin was even more, you know, off in left field than Paul was. So, <laughs> so uh, to have have both those guys in, in in the same band was really something to see. And uh, yeah, I, I remember one night them playing at the at the the, the Jane Bond in Waterloo, which is just, you know tiny little cafe and uh and uh yeah it was that was a pretty mind-blowing night and then then of course you know later on um the rio show at the starlight and martin martin lost his voice for whatever reason and uh they invited paul to come up and sing all of martin's songs and he you know it was just uh that was just one of the most incredible things i'd ever witnessed Jesus was once a teenager too He knelt on the lawn And he wept woe be gone All his ex-friends raced like demons too The face of the Albion Mall Just my final thoughts are just, you know, Paul was you know, he, you know, I always, 
you know, part of me always kind of, you know, regretted that I never got as close to him as maybe I felt like I should have been. But, um, but, you know, I really, I really treasure the, the, the friendship we had because he, you know, he, he was, he was just so uh, engaging. I guess that's, that's, that's the right word. You know, once we kind of connected on, on something, you know, it was, you know, felt a real bond with them. You know, we could just, you know, cause being, you know, I guess Kitchener Waterloo, you wouldn't consider it a small town, but for us growing up there, it always felt like a small town. So to have kind of a circle of friends who are kind of all into the same music and sort of had the same goals. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a really special time. And, uh, you know, we all, we, we all kind of felt we we're all sort of on the same mission to, uh, to, to create, to create art and, um, and you know, what, what Paul left behind is, is, is definitely uh you know great art and beyond you know and it, it 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 deserves a place in the uh you know canadian musical canon of that era for sure this is a song called giants Diggers, and uh, that's been going on for uh, about 33, 34 years now. Before that, I sang with uh, with Andrew Cash, and uh, coming out of university uh, out of McMaster in Hamilton, Ontario, I played in a band called Directive 17 with a K. And we were uh, we loved the jam, and we loved uh, you know all the all the kind of the the uh, three-piece with a vocalist acts that were going on at that time, like uh, psychedelic furs and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a uh, it's been an amazing journey. All right, perhaps you could start by telling me when you first uh, became aware of Paul McLeod and when and how you got to know him. I met Paul when he was probably about nineteen at a venue in. Uh, Kitchener called Stages 
and we only played there maybe two or three times, but, uh, you know, I was just out after the show talking to some folks and, uh, and Paul introduced himself and he was, uh, really together. Um, you know, he was just, he was easy to talk to, uh, was, uh, interested in stuff. And then we just kept in touch, you know, uh, I just, uh, he had, it was either right around then or shortly thereafter. I think he made a cassette of some of his, uh, some of his material. And so I heard that. And, uh, and so we just, you know, we struck up a friendship. Uh, and so that would have been probably about 1990 or so, 91, maybe. And then, um, we stayed in touch. Uh, we would often have, uh, Paul open shows for us when we would, uh, come to town to uh, Kitchener or Waterloo, Guelph. And then uh, when Peter Cash left the Skydiggers in uh, 96, uh, we auditioned uh, We auditioned a bunch of people um, to uh, to join the band in Peter's place. And, uh, and so after all of that, I mean, we kind of knew it was Paul all along because he, he knew most of our material better than we did. Uh, he's just that fast and that quick. And then it was just kind of like, okay, well, let's, let's, I mean, it just makes total sense. Paul just, and so Paul joined us and, uh, and played, uh, played in the band for, I would say maybe seven or eight years. That had to be a hard situation. I mean, losing Peter Cash, such a, such an identifiable part of the band, um, a strong vocalist, and then having I don't know whether you felt like you had to replace him or, or, or just wanted to. Um, you probably could have got somebody similar to Peter, but Paul was, Paul was a completely different kind of animal to Peter Cash, wasn't he? So how did that work? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it worked. It, it worked great. I mean, at first, at first we didn't play, we really didn't play any of Peter's material, which, you know, in in retrospect, uh, I don't know what we were thinking. I, I think we just thought, you know, we have to establish our own identity separate of Peter. And yet, you know, the songs the songs belong to everyone, right? They belong to the they belong to the audience. They belong to the band, you know. So it, it took us a while to realize that they were our songs too. They weren't just because Peter wrote them and sang them. They weren't, you know, they they didn't have to disappear from our catalog. But Paul, Paul came in. I mean, Paul's a wonderful, wonderful uh, singer and uh, and guitar player. So you know, he came in, and, and uh, the the guitar playing became quite dr- different in the band because it, up until that point, Peter had m- um, almost exclusively played acoustic guitar. He was playing a little bit of electric guitar uh, at the at the end of the run um, in '95. And Josh was playing electric and acoustic. So Paul just came in and, you know, very, very, you know, very cool, tasty parts he would uh, he would come up with on the guitar. And then right away, we we wanted to make a record because uh, Peter Von Alten, who'd been playing drums with us for the past two or three years at the same. He left it about the same time uh, Peter cashed it. So. Uh, and we wanted to make, we had some songs. Josh had been writing a lot of songs. Um, and so we really wanted to make a record right away. 
And so we went into uh, Chemical Sound uh, with um, Gavin Brown on drums and Paul. And then it was Josh, uh, Ron Macy, and myself, the core members of the group. And those guys kicked our asses, Gavin and Paul. They were so good. And we really, for us, it was, you know, a real, uh, it was really the beginning of a new adventure, uh, particularly in the studio, because we, we would do, you know, we would take a song and we would do it this way. And then we'd listen to it and then say, why don't we try it this way? And we were just, it was, and they were so fast, the two of them, that we were able to basically, you know, we spent a lot of time in the studio and it was a real learning process for, for us to be able to do that. So, and that, that album, the resulting album of that was Desmond's Hip City. And that's a very different record. So how much, how much kind of, and Paul is, is more of an electric kind of rocky player in a lot of ways. Uh, how much influence did he have on the sound versus, you know, you guys kind of telling him what you wanted it to sound like? Well, you know, we've never told anybody what to play. That's not that, you know, we, when we make the decision to have somebody join us, the reason that we're doing that is that we want what they have, whatever that may be, you know, and Gavin also is a very aggressive drummer. So, you know, it just, uh, you know, the material on the album and it was, you know, it was mid nineties, um, you know, Nirvana had come along, the hip were, uh, the hip, you know, things had gotten more aggressive from, say, 1990. <laughs> so, so we were, we were definitely, uh, you know, influenced by that as well. We weren't, uh, we weren't going to just stick to uh, acoustic guitars and, uh, and here we go again, you know. Everybody I've talked to said he was such a strong solo performer, even from the beginning. He was always at his element as a solo performer. So was it hard for him to suddenly be part of a band? Did he did he kind of naturally want to take over at all? Not at all. Not at all. He he fit in perfectly. And I think, you know, I think part of it was because, A, we didn't tell him what to do. Uh, we didn't, you know, he came up with his, he came up with his own parts, which were always fantastic. And um, he, you know, we loved him and I think he loved us. Uh, you know, I think uh, there's a mutual, uh, obviously a mutual respect. And, and I think he genuinely enjoyed the music. Uh, I mean, he was a big music fan. I mean, Paul could play. Paul must have had a repertoire of four or five hundred songs. He was we used to call him the human jukebox. You know, because when he'd be doing his solo shows, you know, sometimes he would just play side B of Abbey Road. You know, and he'd just, just a man in his guitar and he'd be the whole, he'd be the whole side B of the Beatles. You know, it was just, it was phenomenal. Yeah, and he, he I guess, opened for the band a lot, even on, on tour and stuff, right? You would have him come out and play a set before the band did. Absolutely. I mean, it worked, it worked out great. Because he would do a set and then, and then he'd uh, and then he'd just slide back into the band, and so it was great because his first, his first, uh, his first real recording, um, I mean, beside that cassette, which was, which was kind of mostly demos, um, 
but he was having he was struggling a bit to find you know it, it can be it can be a real challenge when you're uh when you play so much live um to go into the studio and and either capture that or adjust to what the studio is um you know you're missing a key component which is the audience <laughs> so uh he was he was having a bit of a challenge finding his sound in the studio so we went out to edmonton in january of i think it was 99 and we went to the sidetrack cafe and we brought in some uh, some recording gear and we recorded i think we played five nights in the dead of winter in edmonton which was it was minus 30 and uh and we played five nights and paul uh opened all five of those nights. And in the end, his first record, Tell the Band to Go Home, which I think you're familiar with, uh, is called from uh, from the live performances at uh, the Sidetrack Cafe. Something I've personally always wondered, are, are there more recordings somewhere? Like, is there more material that, that we haven't heard? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? Until you mentioned that, I hadn't really... I hadn't really thought of that, but yes, there would be. Well, if I can plant that seed in your head, Andy, then I've done I've done some good work here today because I know a lot of us would be would be very interested in hearing even a good recording of of him with the band. I mean, I know you have the uh, uh, the live album, which is wonderful with him, but uh, even you know any other recordings, I know for us fans would be wonderful. There is there's definitely stuff. Uh, you know, now it's a matter of finding the different formats to. Uh, to uh, to dump the music down onto a hard drive or whatever, because I think that was all recorded on ADAT or one of those one of those digital tape formats. Um, but that's a you know what that that really yeah that gives me an idea. And you know just um, I realized I had never looked for you know I've got Paul's CDs and and uh, you know I've got uh, I've I've got some of his other some of his master tapes and stuff, but I'd never, I hadn't considered, um, I just checked Spotify and he's not on Spotify, which, uh, yeah, that, that needs, that needs to be, uh, that needs to be, as Paul would say, rectified. But I, I, when I went on and I, you know, like close and play isn't there and it's just kind of like, what that that just seems that that's not right but there is stuff up on youtube it's funny because when i want to reminisce about paul i i go on youtube because i want to see yeah i want to see him uh yeah uh, everybody I've talked to so far has said that uh, paul was one of the most hilarious people they've ever met and they have had some pretty wild stories and some pretty great memories uh touring with him you must have you must have had a lot of laughs what was that what was that like we always you know what we we always had we always had a, a lot of laughs and paul paul is he's a, just a sponge when it comes to uh absorbing information and humor and i mean it just like he he just uh, he his not only was he I think he's probably the the brightest person I've ever met, but he had also absorbed 
so much pop culture uh, and just could, you know, trot stuff out anytime, anytime. He just had, you know, he had the references. You couldn't, you couldn't really make a reference to anything that he, that he wasn't aware of. You know, it's kind of like the Simpsons, right? The Simpsons, I can't watch the Simpsons because I find it exhausting because because basically in every sentence there's a reference to something else. And of course Paul loved the Simpsons. But I couldn't I I couldn't I I just I, I found it I would get tired watching. <laughs> but but yeah. Uh, you know there there I can't I mean there were so many we had so many good times and, and, and I mean, we went to, we went to Europe um, and we played, we played in Holland and uh, Belgium. And, and, you know, Paul was always on his game. Uh, no matter how much um, he imbibed or consumed, he was always able to, always able to play. And of course, you know, when you're, when you're playing in Holland or Belgium, I mean, there's, you know, the beer is great, the, you know, but I do remember one show uh, in a, I think we were playing in a suburb of Amsterdam and uh, I think Randy Kernew was playing drums with us on that tour. And I think Randy and Paul found a, a coffee shop that afternoon. And, uh, they both proceeded to get uh, very, very stoned. And uh, I just remember the show was, uh, it was slightly confusing. <laughs> just because just, I remember, I remember looking over at Paul and he was just somewhere else and that had never happened before. And it was, you know, it was just one of those nights. I mean, you're, you're kind of grinding it out through, Holland and Belgium and there is temptation and but that was that was that was that wasn't humorous so much as it was just a little bizarre but that was yeah so any other kind of highlights of of those years with Paul I mean I know you made a couple of records you made uh, Desmond's Hip City and then uh, Bittersweet Harmony and uh, there's a live record as well and uh, sort of did his did his role grow in the band or change over that time? I would say a little bit, um, a little bit. Uh, but you know, he had his own career going on that was running a parallel track, so his material uh, went towards uh, his solo career. Um, so I, I would say, you know, the funny thing is, uh, I would say 99, 2000, we, we, for about three years, we did not play very much. So, you know, our way back in was, uh, I mean, we didn't make a studio album between Desmond's, which came out in 97 and Bittersweet. Sweet Harmony, excuse me, that came out in 2003. So that was six years between albums. And we were, uh, yeah, we just, uh, I guess we struggled a bit through that time with our, you know, with what we wanted to do. And 
how we wanted to do it. So when we came back to do uh, to do Bittersweet Harmony with uh, Ian Blurton producing, that was uh, that was a real treat. Paul played. There's some great, great stuff of Paul's on that. There's some great playing. There's some really great playing. Yeah, yeah. And he was, um, you know, he made close and play. Josh and I did some recording with uh, with Hawksley Workman, and then and then Paul went and uh, some of the stuff on Bittersweet Harmony is uh, was recorded by Hawksley Workman. Uh, like California, um, Sweetheartache, and um, and then Paul went and made a, a recording with Hawksley. So it's all uh, it's all eight track. Uh, Hawksley had a, an eight track. Uh, he had a little studio in a a basement of a house around Young and Eglinton in Toronto, and you'd go and you'd lay down the track and the vocal, and then he would play drums and bass, keyboards. He'd sing harmonies. He was just, it was phenomenal. So I think Paul and Hawksley really hit it off. Yeah, I love Broken Wing. That's an awesome song. Well, I was just going to say, you know, Paul, Paul had the ability. He had that, you know, that kind of focus that really bright people have of being able to, you know, if he'd get interested in something, he would kind of really go for it he you know he got into cycling and he was and you know he was he was cycling all over you know that whole um what what county is kitchener waterloo in Uh, maybe it's waterloo county anyway he would he would cycle all over you know he'd go he'd go miles and miles just crazy he had a had a and he would, you know, he'd study stuff. You know, he just, he would, he, like I say, he just absorbed stuff so easily and, and had such a mathematical brain as well. Down around Biloxi Big girls are swimming in the sea And oh, they look like sisters in the ocean And the boy will fill his pail with salty water Well, as I said, you know, and then we didn't... After 2003, we played a little bit. uh, But then again, we didn't record again until 2008. And Paul was, he was doing his own thing. Um, it just was kind of a natural, uh, separation. I mean, it was never formalized. We, you know, we had Paul come back and play with us in, uh, in, uh, 2009 when we were celebrating our 20th anniversary as a band, Paul came back and did some shows with us then. Um, yeah, it just, um. It's all a bit of a blur, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's uh, it's just yeah. Uh, I was lucky enough to see one of those shows. I I was in Toronto in two thousand nine. I got to see you guys at the uh, at the Glen Gould Theater, and and Paul did that show, and it was 
it was probably my favorite show that I'd ever seen him do. He was, he just seemed so, so on that night. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, he was great. He was really great, but he was also moving off. You know, he was doing it. Like I say, he was doing his own thing. And, um, it was a bit challenging navigating the, even the, it's not a big distance between KW and Toronto, but he didn't drive. And, uh, it just, it just became a bit of a challenge. I had, you know, I had encouraged him to, to either move to Toronto or move anywhere. I think a change of scenery would have been, would have been a good thing, but he, you know, he, he, he knew what he knew and that's, and that was, and so he knew KW and that's, and that's where he was. Can you tell me about uh, when you heard that he died, how that affected you? We were coming back from, um, uh, I can't remember whether it was the East Coast or the West Coast. I think it might have been we were coming back from Calgary. And uh, the plane touched down, and you know you turn your phone on when uh, when you hit the uh, when you hit the runway, and uh, and there was a message from uh, Brent Reddy asking me to call him, so I called him, and he told me the news. And it was uh, it was a terrible moment. It was terrible, and you know, and you start. Uh, you know, you feel terrible that uh, that that you know Paul got to that place, and then you feel guilty. You know, you feel like you always feel like you know maybe you could have been the one to to help. But that you know, I yeah, I can't. I you know, I've never been in. Yeah, I've never been in that situation where I where the darkness, you know, became overwhelming, and uh, so I, you know, I, I just, uh, I'm, you know, I miss Paul every day, and I wish I could, uh, I wish I could tell him that that I love him. Yeah, it's such a natural reaction. I mean, even me, I had such a peripheral relationship with him. I mean, he certainly knew how much I valued his music and I loved talking to him whenever I could and stuff. And uh, I don't know, just uh, I felt like I felt a lot of those same emotions. Like, I wish I had known. I wish there was something I could have done or said. And it's, you know, yeah, it's it's kind of irrational from a far distance. But uh, it it is. But it's, I think it's very natural too to to, you know, to, to feel like you've, um, you know, that, that you've let a friend down, um, which is, which is how I feel. Um, but he didn't reach out either. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, you know, he was, he was, he was a pretty, in many ways, he was quite a private person. And he was not um, very, uh, what's the right word? He was not very amenable amenable to uh, reaching out to get help. 
he would not ask for help. Yeah, a lot of us are like that. I mean, this particular yeah. show kind of exists for that reason. I'm hoping to normalize some of these conversations about mental illness and our struggles and things. So, yeah, you know, help move that conversation forward. Maybe it makes it easier for somebody else to have that conversation. Absolutely. Know. Absolutely. And Paul would want that too, you know, if I may be so arrogant as to speak on his behalf, <laughs> he would, he would want that. He would want something. He would want something good to come of, you know, of, of his, of his journey. And yeah. I mean, like all of us, he just wanted to be loved. I still, I can't quite get a grip on it. You know, I can't, I can't quite acknowledge the fact that, that he won't be back. And um, I just, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I, I didn't even realize it's been, it's been five years. It's shocking. It's shocking. And I was talking to Josh this morning. We, we've been getting together to rehearse regularly and just, you know, saying five years, it's just, it's, it's way too, you know, it's way too much. It's, it was too much to, uh, to, you know, to think I'm just waiting for him to come back from, you know, from wherever he's, uh, he's been the last five years. So, trying to figure out a way to to make a you know it'd be great to do some uh, a, a tribute album it'd be really great England's not the mythical land of Madame George and Roses it's the home of police who kill black boys on mopeds I love my boy that's why I'm leaving I don't want him to be aware that there's any such thing as grieving it was just his ability to stand on stage and you know play a song like Sinead O'Connor's Black Boys on Mopeds you know and and just reach right into your soul you know with songs like that he could really he was an intense guy and passionate. And that's, you know, that was, that was both a blessing and a curse. And, uh, but, you know, to be, to have the privilege of, of hearing him perform songs like that, songs of his like Rectify or, um, I don't know what the song is called, but he wrote it after we went to Holland. Maybe the song is called Holland. Yeah. And just to hear that, you know, the first time you hear that guitar part, it's, it just, you know, I think that a tough thing for people wanting to cover Paul's songs is that nobody can play the guitar parts. So, I mean, you could play the chords and it would sound good and you could sing the song, but nobody can play those guitar parts. The guitar parts are awesome. Yeah, he had he had kind of a legendary ability. I mean, he he played in Martin Tielli's band. You know, like like that's got to be you got to be uh, uh, up on your game to to keep your uh, 
to keep up with Martin. So he obviously had some serious skill there. Yeah, he loved he loved the Rios. Yeah, he loved the Rios. And you know, you, you know, then you'd hear you'd hear uh, um, Paul and and uh, Danny Michelle do uh, you know uh, like uh, Bowie and uh, and Freddie, you know, under pressure. You know, and it was awesome. It was always right, right on. And then, and then, and then Paul would start rapping. I'm like, what are you doing? How do you do that? You know, you just start rapping, and he was great. He was like, I don't know how you do that. And he loved basketball. He was a good basketball player, really good volleyball player. You know, he just, yeah. No, I can't wait to go back to Harlem. Sadly, the sudden, tragic nature of Paul McLeod's death, as is so often the case in similar situations, caused a lot of sadness, anger, and some division among friends and relatives. I've always said that suicide deaths are the hardest to come to grips with, and they leave the most damage and pain behind. Paul's music at this point largely is unavailable. I'll put information about all the music used in this episode and links to whatever you can currently buy on the website for this show at flywithyourshadow.com. I'll have a lot of Paul's music and more memories on his namesake show, Tell the Band to Go Home, on the June 20th episode. I hope you'll join me for that by visiting tellthebandtogohome.com. If you have memories of Paul that you want to share or requests or feedback, please feel free to leave a comment at either website. You can always email me at flywithyourshadow at gmail.com or maybe I'll see you in the Facebook group. The purpose of this show is to help further important conversations about mental illness and suicide. I've been there. I understand. I'm glad to talk to you or anyone anytime if you're feeling alone because you're really not. If you know someone who appears to be struggling, please look out for them right away. Get the medical help. You can't assume that everything's going to be okay, and you can't assume that someone in trouble is going to ask for help because so often we don't. We really need to look out for each other. I thank you for making it through this long and sometimes difficult episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell someone else about the show. Follow and subscribe on social media and the streaming service of your choice. Most of all, I hope you'll join me again next time. I'm Jeff Robson, and this has been Fly With Your Shadow. I love you, Paul. I miss you, and I thank you for our conversations and all the great music. In the sky is red from off-twall.